In a speech given to the Illinois Republican Convention in 1858, a newly nominated candidate for Senate, Abraham Lincoln, stood up and said, A house divided against itself cannot stand. I believe this government cannot endure permanently, half slave and half free. I do not expect the Union to be dissolved. I do not expect the house to fall. But I do expect it will cease to be divided. It will become all one thing or all the other. In Abraham Lincoln's mind, a line had been drawn and the crisis moment had been reached in the Union. Something was going to happen. For over a hundred years, the issue of slavery had been put aside and and sidelined, but now, in Lincoln's estimation, there was no turning back. It had got to a point where both sides couldn't keep going on the same way they were going and remain uh, in unity. He said something was going to happen. There was no more ignoring it. It's going to be all of one thing or all the other, but we can't stand divided. When our reading today, we're seeing the gospel of the kingdom being preached and advancing. Christ began at his baptism, and he goes and he starts preaching, and then people start following. He goes to a synagogue, and more and more people are starting to come, and then now multitudes are gathering around. And his gospel was advancing to, to all throughout the land, but it's also coming under attack. Those who see what's going on are at enmity with Jesus and now are advancing towards him. Not to submit, but to attack. And so as the gospel of the kingdom is being proclaimed and disciples are being made and is going out to all corners, those who are opposed to Christ are advancing towards him to attack. So this morning... I'm going to preach on the kingdom advanced and the kingdom attacked. And those will be the two points for our message. As we see Jesus preaching the gospel and calling disciples unto himself, we also see men rising up. There, it's gotten to a point now in Jesus' ministry that you couldn't just ignore him. You couldn't just say, well, that's just a group out there by the River Jordan doing their own thing. No, it had come to a moment where you were with Jesus or you were against him, but there was no middle ground. As men come to Jesus, the gospel spread. Jesus commissions men in the first part of this text to the work of the gospel. But we also see that Jesus and his work come under attack. And it becomes more and more evident that to be a disciple of Jesus is to take a side. And not to become a disciple of Jesus is to take a side. There's a division here. A line is drawn. And you're on one side or the other. There is no neutral ground here. So, beginning in verse 7, we find the kingdom being advanced. Jesus has caused quite a stir, healing the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. There's the two Sabbath controversies we read of in the previous chapters. So much so the Pharisees joined forces with the Herodians. So you have a religious sect that was all about uh, staying together and being separate, joining with a political group to make this unholy confederacy to destroy their common enemy, the Son of Man. 
Well, Jesus withdraws himself to the sea, and a great multitude follow. So we start out, Mark, by the River Jordan, and now look what's happened. A multitude, a great multitude. It says in chapter 2 that there was a multitude by the sea, but now five times in this chapter, if you notice there, five times, Mark tells us of the multitude, of the great multitude. In, in verse 7, in verse 8, verse 9, verse 20, verse 32, if you notice there, you see that multitude, 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 five times. After the Sabbath controversy, Jesus' fame is spreading, and people are coming to him. He came to preach the gospel of the kingdom, Mark tells us, and that kingdom message is being spread. Jesus came to save sinners. As he preaches the gospel and he performs miracles in every town, people are coming to him. And it says from uh, Idumea, or that's Edom, so that's southeast uh, Judah, or below, it's, it's not even in Israel, it's uh, south of Israel, <clears throat> to, to Sidian, and that's on the Mediterranean coast, and it's in modern-day Lebanon. So if you kind of know where Beirut is, it's just south of Beirut. So literally, north, south, and east, and west. All the old boundaries of Israel and beyond. We're talking about the boundaries when Solomon was king and David was king. Um, that, that before Jeroboam split and took the northern tribes in a revolt, this, this message is going forth to all the old lands outside of even uh, Israel. The gospel was spreading. And people are coming from all over, not just a small little part of, of Israel or Judah. Isaiah 43 says, Fear not, for I am with thee. I will bring thy seed from the east and gather thee from the west. I will say to the north, Give up, and to the south, Keep not back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Jesus is preaching, and people are being drawn to him. Well, Jesus had such a multitude that he went out on a ship to preach because people were pressing into him and, and he couldn't even get the space to talk to him. So he gets up on the ship and they're on the shore and he, he uses the ship for a pulpit because uh, there's so many people who had come. And he healed their sick. And the multitude kept pressing upon him, trying to get close to him to touch him because of their great need. So you got people greatly afflicted and distressed with, with diseases. Imagine your child with a, a deadly, uncurable disease. Would you, take, would you take him to Jesus? Would you walk the day's journeys it would take to get him there? Well, that's what these people were doing. They had a great need, and here was a great healer. And so they came. Not only physical disease, but spiritual oppression. Unclean spirits saw him, they fell down and cried, Thou art the Son of God. These unclean spirits knew who Jesus was, even if many of these people didn't know who Jesus was. They knew he was a healer, but a lot of them, that's all they knew. But Jesus tells them to hush. He tells those unclean spirits to be quiet. They would not be proclaiming his name. I think the main thing that we can take from that 
is Jesus has the authority to tell them to be quiet. He silences them. Hush. I don't want to hear anything out of you. And they were silent. What kind of man is this that can heal the sick? That can cast out demons? That has the power to tell a demon to be quiet? And he's silenced. So we leave the seashore and Jesus goes up into a mountain. He leaves the multitude down by the sea and reminiscent to God calling Moses up to the mountain. Jesus calls whom he would up to the mountain with him. So out of this multitude of people who were there for various reasons, you had disciples. And out of those disciples, Jesus called twelve. Jesus called whom he would. He didn't, he didn't say, whoever wants to be my disciple and my close uh, group here, uh, I want you to come. No, he called whom he would. And he called 12 and he set them apart. And when he called those 12, they came. Jesus had the power to call, the authority to call whom he would. He had the power to call men and commission them to a work. And so Jesus called, out of those disciples, he called 12 men. He ordained them to a particular work. And if you look in verses 13 and 15, all the action words are all about Jesus. All the things that were going on is what Jesus was doing. He's the one that's ordaining. He's the one that's calling. He's the one that's giving power. The only thing the twelve did was hear the call and come. That's all that the twelve did. So these twelve were called up in the mountain, but Jesus is the one that's choosing and ordaining and authorizing and commissioning. So now they're up on this mountain, and Jesus has these twelve men Chosen to do the work. Well, what work? Well, verse 14, And he ordained twelve that they should be with him, that he might send them forth to preach, and to have power to heal sicknesses, and to cast out devils. Amazingly, he's calling these twelve men to go out and do the very same things that he was doing. Now think about that for a minute. People from all over were coming to Jesus to either hear him preach, to be healed of sicknesses, or to have unclean spirits cast out. And Jesus calls these 12 men. He didn't put out a, a job application, or he didn't put out a job board and get all the applications and go through and see who was the best fitted or best suited for the job. He goes and says, I want you, I want you, I want you. You all, you 12, you come with me. And I'm going to commission you to go out and to preach. He didn't go with the scribes or the priests or people who were already doing that. He said, no, I'm going to ordain you to go out and to preach. I'll tell you what to preach and I'll empower you to do it. I want you to go out and heal the sick. You four over there, I know that you were fishermen. Now you'll be fishers of men, and they're also going to be able to heal the sick. And you're going to be able to cast out demons. Now think about that. 
Why could Jesus do that? Because he had power and authority to. Now Jesus is showing his power and authority as, as the Son of Man to choose men, to commission them, and then to empower them to do all these works. The very same thing that Jesus was doing. So what they will be doing is not coming and working out of their own power, but they are called ambassadors of Christ. They are called to go out in the name of Christ with the power that he will give them to do what he would have them to do. They were not called to go out and change the government. They were not called to go out and, um, and write political theories. They were not called to go out and even feed the poor and all these things. Though they, they did those Although they did feed the poor and they did uh, care about those things, that's not what they were called to do. Jesus said, I want you 12 to go out in my name with the power I give you and you go out with the authority that I give you to preach, to heal the sick, and to cast out demons, just like I'm doing. They were chosen to watch him. And to be with him. So he said, now you're going to follow me about, except whenever I send you somewhere alone. You are going to be with me. You will. These men received special instruction from Jesus that no one else had. A lot of the stories that we have in the Gospels are where it was just Jesus and the twelve, and sometimes Jesus and just two or three of them. We know these things because they were there. They were eyewitnesses. They heard special instruction that Jesus said, don't, say, don't tell anybody this until after I've ascended. Then you can tell people. They will see things that Jesus does, hear things that Jesus taught, and be a part of the work and ministry of Christ in a unique way as eyewitnesses to the glory and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ in his work. They'll hear his private prayers to the Father. They'll have their feet washed to participate in, actually, the, the First Supper, the Lord's Supper. They will be a part of his entire ministry. Ordained, then, to go out and to preach, to send them out as ambassadors, to preach repentance and faith. They will be the fishers of men that Jesus told them they would be. They'd go and first call the lost sheep of the house of Israel out of darkness into light. They will speak the truth. They will declare that the king has come and to repent and turn to him. They'll have the power to heal as, as Christ healed. They'll have the power to cast out devils. Only because Christ has delegated this work to them. Now you can only delegate a work if, you have, if it's your work. If I ask some of you to, to come with me and start doing my work, I'd get fired. Because... The work that I do has been given for me to do, and if I delegated it to somebody who didn't, didn't work there, then I'd get in trouble. I don't have the ability to do that. Well, Jesus can call and commission and delegate and give authority to because it is his work. He is the king. And these 12 wouldn't have been the people you might have called if you were going to uh, start an assembly of people. To do your work. He called out this group. And he said you're going to follow me. You're going to learn from me. 
and I'm going to send you out. But he just called regular, ordinary guys. Regular, ordinary men. And he prepared them for the ministry. He prepared them to preach. He equipped them to do the job. Because you can see what happens whenever they're left on their own strength, out on their own, and their own abilities. Their successes demonstrate the power of God, and their weaknesses show also the power of God. And it's remarkable how the Lord has chosen to do his work here upon the earth. Through churches, God calls men to proclaim the gospel, to equip the saints to do the work of God in the assembly. And he calls us to go out into the world, all of us, to go out into the world and make his name known. To baptize in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. To spread the gospel in the name of Christ. To make more disciples in the name of Christ. This is how God has chosen to do his work. Not by sending angels to come and make big flashes of of miraculous light and to, to scare people, but to have ordinary, regular people declare what Christ has done for them. And he did that, that he might receive all the glory. Paul says as much to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 1, 27. But God hath chosen the foolish things of the world to confound the wise, and God hath chosen the weak things of the world to confound the things which are mighty, and the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God hath chosen, yea, the things which are not, to bring not the things that are, that no flesh should glory in his presence. But of him are you in Christ Jesus, who of God's is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That according as it is written, he that glorieth, let him glory in the Lord. We, are, we have this treasure of the gospel, this treasure of the Lord Jesus Christ in, in earthen vessels and in clay pots. That we go forth to, to make Christ known, to lift up his name. This great work is given to regular, ordinary people who might not have the, the, the flash and the, the things that, that people would want to see. But God gives this message in this ordinary way that he would receive all the glory. So whenever Peter comes and James and John and, and Andrew come along to heal sick and cast out devils, I say, wow, those guys sure have it all together. They say, wow, what a great Savior. What a glorious Savior. It's advancing. The gospel is advancing. Now we have this assembly together. We have a church here of men who have been called and commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ to go out and to preach the gospel and to to do what God has given them the uh, ability and the power to do in his name that he might be glorified. Multitudes are coming to hear. But while the work is advancing, the work is also under attack. So in the previous section there, Jesus healed people. He cast out demons. He preached there on the ship. He called disciples to heal people. To cast out demons. 
and to preach the gospel. Now Jesus himself is going to teach about casting out devils and teach about what it is to be a disciple. So Jesus casts out and has this power to do these things. People say, well, how does he have the power to cast out devils? Who's this guy I think he is that can cast out devils? Where does he get this ability? Where does he get this power to do this? How is he drawing people to himself? How is he calling and commissioning people to do, uh, do these things? Well, verse 20, we find the multitude again. So the multitude comes together again so that they could not so much as eat bread. Verse number 20. So now that they've come to the house, in verse 19, they came to the house. The multitude follows them there. So the multitude was at the sea. Jesus goes up alone in the mountain, calls the twelve. They come back down the mountain, go into a house, and the multitude catches up with them. Now they're surrounded. The multitude comes together. So, so many people in there, you couldn't even eat. And so Mark starts this next story in verse uh, 21. When his friends heard of it, they went out to lay hold on him, for they said he's beside himself. So Mark starts this story with some friends or, or some kin um, coming to where Jesus is. And so we might imagine them walking up to the house saying, well, I heard Jesus is down here at the house. We need to go have a talk with him. And they might be re- rehearsing what they're going to say. Very serious, concerned looks on their face. It's a serious matter, so they think. They've come to lay hold on him. And Mark uses that same word, Mark 14, 6, uh, 46, where they come and arrest Jesus and they lay hold on him. So Jesus or Judas goes and kisses him on the cheek and the, the soldiers lay hold on him. They seize him. Well, that's what his friends, his family, that's what they've come to do. They've come to seize, seize him. They've come to lay hold of him. They're going to grab a hold of him. They're going to take him out of this house. They're going to take him away from all these people because they think he has lost his mind. So they're on the road and say, I don't know what's gotten into Jesus, but he's become fanatical. And look what's happening. He's, he's lost his mind. We, we got to put an end to this. These people are going to crush him. We, we just got to put an end to all this. And so they get close to the house, and of course, it's packed. Just like uh, whenever the man that was paralyzed got there, it's packed. They can't get close to the house. They're not going to be able to get into the house. And so they say, we got to get somebody in there. Just send a message and tell Jesus we need to talk to him. Tell him to come out here. All right. So then we got that on the outside. So the sort, then the story's interrupted. And now we zoom into the inside. So we got the, those guys outside waiting. They send a messenger. Hey, pass the word. We need to speak to Jesus. Just pass the word. Tell him it's his mother and his brethren. We need to talk to him. The story starts getting passed in from person to person. But now we go inside the house with all these people packed inside with the scribes. The scribes come from Jerusalem to meet with Jesus. These guys are the scholars. 
the ones who know the scripture better than everybody else. Since it was their life to know it. And they came to Jesus. And the multitudes had been there to hear Jesus and to be healed by Jesus. But these scribes and the family have come to try to put an end to Jesus' ministry. Not to listen, but to frustrate the work. And so now, from two different aspects, there's an attack. Well, these scribes in the inside of the house have thought about what Jesus is doing, and they've come to the conclusion that he is of Beelzebub, that he is empowered by the prince of devils. How does Jesus cast out all these devils? Well, he's got a devil himself. That's how. Or at least that's what they said. People come to scribes and say, you heard about this Jesus fellow? Yeah, we've heard about him. What do you think? That's pretty amazing how he can heal the sick and cast out devils. You heard him preach? I've never heard anybody preach like him. He certainly doesn't preach like you guys do. He preaches with form of authority. How do you think that made the scribes feel? I mean, that, remember, that's what they were saying. This guy doesn't preach like those scribes. He preaches like somebody knows what he's talking about. How do you think they accepted that? Well, of course they didn't. What do you think about that, Mr. Scribe? Well, I think he's probably demon-possessed himself. That's how he has all his power. Um, the devil's giving him all this power. He's, he's uh, possessed by Beelzebub himself, the prince of the devils. Well, Jesus calls for him and tells him a parable. You think that I cast out unclean spirits by the power of Satan? Well, a kingdom divided against itself can't stand. A house divided against itself can't stand. So this is where Lincoln got that. He, he was saying our nation can't stand if it's divided because it's going to end up, it's going to fall. A house can't stand if it's divided. You take a husband and a wife who are divided, they can't, and, and the division goes more and more uh, tense and more and more divided. The house can't stand, and that's what he's saying. Even a house can't. A nation can't. If Jesus was working to advance the kingdom of Satan, then why would he start a civil war? Think about that. If, if his purpose was to advance the kingdom of darkness, why has he started a, king, a civil war in the kingdom? Well, the answer is, it's ridiculous to say so, that Jesus was not um, possessed of the devil because he was actively casting out and subduing the works of Satan. Then he gives the parable. He said, no one can break into a strong man's house and spoil his possessions while he's walking freely in the house. So if there's somebody got guns in every corner of the house, and you know they got guns in every corner of the house, and you know they're home, it's night, and you can see them walking around, and you can see they got a 45 strap to their side, and you can see in the corner there's a shotgun over there, and there's an AR-15 over here, and, and there's guns everywhere. Well, you're not going to just bust in the door and walk up there and just start grabbing his TV off the wall and grabbing his possessions. 
Well, that'd be suicide, right? You couldn't do that. Well, if you were planning to rob that man, what would be the first thing you'd have to do? Well, you'd have to take care of the strong man, wouldn't you? Because those guns aren't going to do anything if he's bound up and he can't uh, shoot them. So you'd have to go in there and you'd have to take care of him first. And once he's out of commission, then you can go and freely do. Well, that's the illustration Jesus is using. In this parable, the devil's a strong man. His kingdom has possessed men and harmed men and reigned in Israel. And it's evident by all the unclean spirits that you see in Jerusalem. Think about how many demons and unclean spirits were just, um, just permeates the pages of the gospel that were being cast out. And despite all the attempts of the people there, they were hopeless in that situation because the strong man was just having his way. So in this regard, what did they need? You need somebody stronger than the strong man, don't you? You need someone to come in with power and with might and to subdue the strong man. And that's what Jesus is saying. That's what I've done. I have the power to come and to tell those demons to be quiet. And they're quiet. I have the power to tell them to leave, and they leave. They fall down before me. And that's what they did, didn't they? They came down, declared earlier that he was the son of man here in this section, that he's the son of God. Jesus said, I am stronger than the strong man. I'm not casting these demons out by the power of the demons. I'm casting out as the son of man. Verse 28, Verily I say unto you, all sins shall be forgiven unto the sons of men and blasphemies. Whithersoever they shall blaspheme, but he that shall blaspheme against the Holy Ghost hath never forgiveness, but is in danger of eternal damnation. Because they said he had an unclean spirit. The scribes knew he was not of the devil. But they said it anyway. It wasn't because they were misunderstood. It wasn't because they were misinformed. They attributed the works of God to the works of the devil. They said that Jesus had an unclean spirit. They blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Now, you can't accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. You can't accidentally uh, commit this unpardonable sin. This was a willing, hard-hearted, spiteful Blasphemy. David Garland said to identify the work of the Holy Spirit as the working power of evil with malicious intent, destroying another's reputation, to safeguard their own influence is unforgivable. These critics reveal themselves to be the ones in league with Satan, the great defamer. We know... You know human nature well enough to know why these scribes are saying that Jesus was full of the devil. These scholars out of envy and pride and malice and enmity towards God and Christ attack Jesus with the view of discrediting him, undermining the work. It wasn't a mistake. It was an unpardonable sin. 
the sin against the Holy Spirit. They blaspheme the person of the Spirit who draws men to Christ, who applies the work of redemption. To blaspheme the Spirit can only come from a reprobate, hard-hearted son of the devil himself. This is evidenced by the fact they didn't fall to their knees and weep. Jesus has told them that they had committed the unpardonable sin. These men knew they were lying. They knew they were um, defaming him. They knew they were blaspheming. They knew who Jesus was and where his power came from, but they lied in order to protect themselves. And Jesus says, you've committed the unpardonable sin. And it didn't it didn't crack a tear. It didn't crack their hard heart. They didn't shed a tear. They weren't moved with conviction in the least bit. They just did not care. Hard-hearted reprobates. And it only made them hate Jesus even more. On the flip side of this, all sin can be forgiven. You hear that? All sin. The, the, the terrible tragedy of that is that people hide their sin or excuse their sin or justify their sin. And they'll say, well, everybody does it. Well, it's not really that bad. Well, um, that's an old-fashioned way of looking at things. And Jesus says all sin can be forgiven. He can make the vilest sinner clean. He can wash away the stain and the guilt of sin and make you white as snow. That that sin, that you, and the burden of that, that guilt that you carry around, that shame that, that it resides there in your heart, that Jesus can take that and take it away and cleanse you and forgive you and pardon you, that you can be righteous before him. That's what he came to do. And yet, people will cross their arms and harden their hearts. Say, well, I haven't sinned. I'm not that bad. And here is the one who came to die in the place of sinners who has come to give faith to those who, who are outside the house of Israel that they may believe and receive him for, and receive pardon and receive mercy. All sins can be forgiven. Oh, what a sweet offer. The sweet sound to the guilty person, you are forgiven. How beautiful it is to hear as a sinner the words, you are forgiven. Or to someone who's done some pretty shameful things, you are forgiven. To those weighted down with guilt and, and, and shame, and the judgment and wrath of God for Jesus to go and say, you are forgiven. You are clean. You are pure. This is the word, this is the work that the scribes were opposed to. This is the message that they were attacking and tried to put an end to. Their work and their theology was to exclude people, to keep people from the house of God. And to themselves, well, Jesus is calling sinners to come and find rest for their souls. And these wicked men stood up to oppose it. 
And it wasn't just the religious men and the scholars who were opposing it. Even his friends and his family attacked the king as well. We started the story with them coming to the house, and by this time, in the, while all that was going on, the word was being passed, hey, um, tell Jesus his, his family's outside. They want to talk to him. Pass it on up. And so all, while that was going on with the scribes, people were passing that message up, and it finally gets to Jesus after he tells them they've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Jesus, uh, Mary and your, your brothers are outside. They want to talk to you. Jesus says, who's my mother and my brethren? Well, that's a pretty shocking question. I mean, if I was up here preaching and a word got up and said, hey, Doug, your dad's outside. And I just stopped and said, who's my dad? Who's my brothers? You might think, well, maybe he has lost it. What, what do you mean, who's my mother? Well, Jesus says it's to get your attention. You know something's coming next. You know he's going to add to that. What does he mean by who is my mother? And so Jesus looks around all those who had gathered to listen. Not the scribes. Forget about the scribes. Not those who are saying, Jesus, you come out here and do what I want you to do. But no, those who were sitting around listening to him, who had come there for that purpose. And he said, behold, my mother and my brethren, for whosoever shall do the will of God the same as my brother, my sister, and my mother. Jesus hasn't disowned his family or even disrespected them. But he's making the point, family doesn't come before God. There's been many people down through the years that have had to choose mama or Christ. And your commitment to Christ is greater than your commitment to your family. Now my guess is, Mary would have been horrified if you would have went out there and said, Mary, do you know you're on the side of the devil? She said, no, no, I'm concerned for Jesus. I, I've come to help him. I've come to, to, to save him. But she had the wrong idea, didn't she? She wanted Jesus to stop. She wanted him to come to her. She wanted him to stop the work of the ministry. She was doing the same thing the scribes wanted but only for different reasons. But Jesus makes it clear, whether it's from attacks from the devil or the attacks from a well-meaning friend or family member, the will of God is of primary importance. And no one should put fidelity to friends or family above fidelity to Christ. Oh God, help me to put Christ first. Help me to do the will of God and put that first. And not to swear allegiance to tradition, to friends, to fellowships, to family, above the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we have been called to do, to follow Christ. A line has been drawn in the sand, and, and there's no neutral ground. You were with Christ or you were against him. You are advancing his work, or you're fighting against it. You hear and follow this morning? In this multitude, where would you be? There's many of the people were there because they didn't know what to think. Others there to attack the work. Well, as men came to Jesus and the gospel spread, 
and Jesus commissioned men to go out and do the work of the gospel, we also see is more people are attacking. It's more and more evident to be a disciple of Jesus Christ is to take a side in this war. Well, as we close, let me ask you, where else could you go this morning? Who else would you go to? Who else can make you a disciple? Who else could forgive you of your sins? Who else could make you a child of God? Well, there's nowhere else you could go. He's the only one who can forgive your sins. He's the only one that has everlasting life. He's the one that the disciples have been pointing to for nearly 2,000 years. And all that time, there's never been one person who's found him to be unfaithful. Or one person who's come to Christ to seek pardon, who's been cast out. Or one person who's repented and turned to Jesus for the rest of their souls and not found it. To be a disciple is to follow the Lord Jesus Christ, to, to receive him as Lord and Savior. To follow him and to continue the work that he's called us to do. What a great work it is to make known the name of the great King of Kings.